Hi, everyone. Welcome. My name is Blair Embry. I'm the communications manager for Prison Yoga Project, and we are really lucky this morning to be joined by Jared Side. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Blair. Yeah. I'm going to read Jared's bio as well. Jared Side is the executive director of Center for Counsel. He has designed, piloted, and coordinated council-based programs in prisons, assisted living centers, youth groups, nonprofits, faith-based organizations, social services, law enforcement agencies, and more. Several of these programs include Co-Mentoring Project for Emancipated Foster Youth, the Organizational Wellness Project for Community-Based Organizations, Peace Officer Wellness, Empathy, and Resilience, or POWER, Training for Police Officers, and the Council for Insight, Compassion, and Resilience, which is, an act, which is active in 29 prisons throughout California and many more programs. He's the author of Where Compassion Begins, Foundational Practices to Enhance Mindfulness, Attention, and Listening from the Heart, and is the editor of Leaving Prison Behind, A Council Before I Go, an illustrated novella created from the words and stories of system-impacted individuals and those who support them. Thank you so much for joining us. Blair, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you in your community. really appreciate the invitation. Will you lead us in a centering opportunity? Sure. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, thanks for the, for the invitation to do that. Um, it's always great to be able to join in the conversation in a good way and to really drop in, uh, to where we are for those uh, folks who are joining us, um, and maybe watching a screen, you may notice that we are joined here by a center, which is something that we do in, uh, the practice of council. We've done it online in this version here, and you'll notice a Tibetan singing bowl and some other items including a candle that has been lit with a, with a good intention that holds space. It also is an invitation for everyone to bring that which you've taken with you through your life to this moment and maybe want to sit down and center in this time together in this conversation. So while we won't be doing counsel per se, we won't actually practice counsel, we will have this moment to kind of bring ourselves into counsel with, with the world and with each other. So thank you for... Um, giving me the chance to do this now for myself and for all of us. Um, I think I'd like to invite this beautiful bull to give us maybe three chimes to mark the entering into this time, into this space, and really just kind of signal for us that we're going to do something a little different with um, some strong intention. So maybe we'll start there if that's okay. us as we settle to really bear witness to how it is to be here in this moment, what we've taken to this time in this place, this incredible collection of bits and pieces and cells and molecules and flesh and bones and blood and hair and all the great stuff that has housed us for all this time and just notice what it is to be the full 
volume and weight of your body as it arrives here. Having placed it in a particular place in the world right now. Just aware of the furniture that you've chosen to, to sit in and the way it has come to meet and support your body. How it is to, to lay yourself down in the chair or sofa or bed, wherever you are. And acknowledging the places where everything you consider to be you is meeting everything you consider to be not you. Just aware of the, the room you're in, the things that are touching your body right now, the fabric of how it feels making contact with your skin, the socks or the shoes or the floor underneath your feet, and how it is to meet those things that are supporting us that are holding us. Mm. Bearing witness to all the air that is touching our skin, surrounding us and moving in and out of us. An amazing moment. <laughs> Meeting everything. And as you bear witness to how it feels to be here right now, how it is to encounter everything else. Noticing what you've carried into this moment, the thoughts that are streaming through your mind and maybe things that are heavy in your heart. And yet here we are. Just pure this. Watching the breath as it moves in, as we manage to take in from the outside everything we need, as it enters the nose of the mouth and into the throat and fills your chest and moves into your lungs and into your blood, and then somehow letting go of everything you don't need in the next exhalation. Every breath, the opportunity to really gather your attention. And every exhale, a chance to really settle in. Again, noticing the places where everything you are meets everything that you think you're not. Some curiosity about those edges. And watching in this moment, this miracle, this abundance, and the generosity with which the air comes in and ease with which you let go of the things you don't need. With every breath. No need to be stingy or greedy. Just 
receiving and offering. I'm grateful for your presence in this moment and in just a moment we'll ask the the bowl to offer us two chimes to end this moment of presence and move into our conversation in a good way. I'm just curious about our audience participation too, um, but really having the altar to center on as well felt particularly potent. So thank you for bringing that practice in. What's your, sorry. Yeah. I appreciate your, your giving me the chance to do that. It's something we are fond of doing in council. It enables us to really show up in a good way and also center the thing that has brought us here and that which we are serving with this time the the um the benefits of everything we do accrue to those who come next and those who surround us and we're only able to be here because of the shoulders we stand on so it's important to presence that thank you what is your first memory of mindfulness or meditation You know, um, so I grew up in a New York that doesn't exist anymore. I grew up in a New York just before crack and kind of just as the AIDS epidemic was kind of um, kind of d- destroying lives. Um, and before that, there was an extraordinary opportunity to be in close proximity with so many stories <laughs> and no one was shy about sharing themselves. So there was a... Um, almost like an overload experience of being able to be present with uh, what was happening in the moment amongst people relationally and also kind of a shutdown that happens just by virtue of growing up in New York. And and so I think, I, you know, I was exposed to a number of uh, contemplative practices. I went to a, a beautiful school called the Walden School in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. That was a wonderful place to grow up. I went there from the time I was four years old to graduating high school. Um I would say that despite a lot of um, contact with a lot of different traditions and lineages, um, it wasn't until my daughter was born, I think, that I really understood what this kind of pure presence could look like. Uh, Something about the fact that, you know, she was, um, you know, she was there. (laughs) She was um, growing in in her mom's belly. Uh, And, 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 you know, I I had something to do with it, presumably. And... um, Somehow it wasn't until she showed up and I was able to be in the presence of her eyes and um, feel what it was to be uh, offered this kind of open-hearted regard and appreciation and be able to give that. That moment of exchange was really transformative for me. I realized the power of pure presence and 
um, unconditional regard could be. And I think that really shifted my meditation practice, which had been a little bit more, um, I don't know, mechanical to something that was really about uh, really just showing up with my full heart open, uh, both to sitting in the Zazen uh, tradition that I was uh, practicing and continue to practice in that lineage, um, but also in terms of all the work that I did and how I would come to understand what counsel is. There's something about what it means to um, let go of everything that is about the past that's you carrying in that as you stuck in dread and foreboding and even hope, but really be in the present moment. So completely open to the arising um, and the uh, dissolution of every moment that really only clarified when I got to be a dad. And I think has continued to be part of what I bring to the work that I do um, hopefully in every moment. I love hearing that just really feeling loving, compassionate presence is what helped you shift your practice that it went kind of like methodical. almost like, it's like a, like a checklist that you said, like, okay, like I sit here, I do this, I do this practice. I control my breath. And then it just allowed you to open and soften. That's so beautiful. Yeah. It's been, I think, you know, though she kind of hates to hear this, I think my daughter has been the teacher since she showed up and probably way before that. And um, it leads into kind of where I first met the practice of counsel as well, which I'm happy to talk about if you'd like. I think it's um, it's been a really uh, extraordinary evolution in terms of my relationship to practice and also, you know, what, what I'm here to do uh, with the rest of my days here. Um, I believe that you know, counsel, as I understand it, is a is a contemplative practice. It's also a form of yoga. It's also a form of appreciation, a social engagement. There are all kinds of ways to understand what it is we do, um, but it is uh, often deeply nourishing um, and often transformative as well. So, it's a it's a kind of a great lead in to, I guess, why we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly where I wanted to go next. I think maybe it's a twofold question: What is counsel, and how did you find it? Mm. <sighs> yeah. Um, counsel is a practice of coming together to listen in a good way, to offer regard, and to share our stories. Um, in counsel, the intention is to listen without judgment and to speak authentically, um, valuing every voice. Um, and I think in that way, counsel really reduces isolation and fosters empathy, builds connection and increases uh, pro-sociality and uh, creates the conditions for compassion to emerge um, in, a, in a very general sense. For me, um, again, going back to the story of my, my daughter, um, after the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles, um, being um, part of a public school community was really challenging. Um, things were not feeling very comfortable or safe or good. Uh, I was um, a very involved parent in my in my daughter's life and was president of the governing board and watched this school environment become a place of fear and uh, suspicion and um, you know a kind of scary place to to be. Didn't feel like folks were really there to. Um, collaborate and create uh, a good environment for education. 
it felt like we needed to do something to nourish the culture of that school. And we had heard the parents did that there was a practice of counsel, this thing called counsel. And we were like, was this counseling? They're counselors. What, what the heck is this? Uh, but it was being experimented with in a couple of schools in the Los Angeles area, integrating into schools where social emotional learning practices were getting less and less funding. And um, there was a great need to bring in the voices of the students, of the little humans that we were there to, to love and take care of. What I saw the practice of counsel do in the open school was amazing. It was really quick and it was transformative. And it took maybe three months for this group of parents to all of a sudden remember why we were there. Remember that despite the fact that we may be different and come from different places and even vote for different people or have different identifications that ultimately when we center the experience of the children and what we want for the next generation and generations to come, there's so much we have in common. And this spread to the teachers and then ultimately to to the kids. You know, my daughter in fourth grade practicing counsel had insight into why the bully was the bully and why her best friend was acting kind of funny and, and why the dynamics in that that she was experiencing were um, being caused by, by causes and conditions that were something that she could really relate to. She became a writer in that moment. And I think what happened with all of the kids um, and with that school was the sort of... Uh, manifestation of what I understood beloved community to be about. I had never really seen it enacted, but folks were really celebrating their diversity, were really showing up with regard and respect and growing together in a good way. And the entire culture shifted. You know, what I experienced was just remarkable. And it, you know, it, it changed my life. It kind of, you know, sort of set me back on, on my heels and made me realize that what I was doing in the entertainment industry and other ways to try to look at um, authenticity and storytelling as a force that could bring communities together. It wasn't nearly as effective as the simple but not easy practice of coming together in a good way and speaking your truth authentically and offering regard to one another. Uh, so I changed my life. Um, I, I got to say, Blair, I, I heard you say the word Aslan, I guess in our audience today, we have somebody who uh, was in that class with my daughter who I haven't talked to in, I think, decades, who I think uh, reached out to me on, on Facebook and maybe here listening. I think it was such an extraordinary time. It's really exciting to hear that Aslan may be out there um, because, you know, those of us who experienced it realized that this was something really special. Uh, it was not something that only would benefit schools. It was something that every community needed. It was something that uh, was desperately needed um, in all kinds of um, areas in which sort of social justice concerns were reaching a peak and there was a, you know, not a lot of good thinking on how to bring folks together, in particular within the prison system, with understanding what was happening within mass incarceration and this movement that was dehumanizing so many, and also the uh, ways in which community were kind of being at the seams. Um, this looked like it could be a way to reweave this torn social fabric. And it turned out to be just that and really changed my life. And I've been so grateful to be in a position to see what happens when you can bring this practice forward and offer it to the folks who are um, so desperate for connection, for an opportunity to show up and be in their authentic truth and also bear witness to each other in a good way without judgment or fear. So I hear that this experience at your daughter's school was the seed. So how did it grow? What happened next? So around this time, um, 
there was an institution in California. I'm not sure how many folks are in California, but there was a thing called the California Department of Corrections. And I think it realized that it was missing something. It was missing this idea of rehabilitation. And so it decided to rename itself California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation and sort of paint an R at the end of all the uniforms and various other signage. Um, but not a lot of thinking went into what that meant. How could this system be something that actually provided um, you know, resources to folks who were incarcerated at extraordinary numbers? The situation reached a peak because uh, prisons were overcrowded. We were uh, incarcerating way, way more folks than we had room for. And so prisons were overcrowded um, to the extent that the Supreme Court found it to be cruel and unusual to incarcerate folks and told the state of California, you better figure out a way to do something about this. It's not it's not OK. And so California um, began looking at ways to explore what rehabilitation meant and you know, had some ideas. Its its bureaucracy kind of came up with a few things, but really recognized the need to work with community-based organizations, with uh, folks who were proximate to the problem, as Brian Stevenson says, and bring in um, sort of subject matter experts that understood what was needed for community and healing and restorative justice. And so some of us were able to get into conversation with some of the folks up in Sacramento and talk about the need to bring programs into prisons that would help folks who were ready to envision that next stage of their life, who paid their debt to society and could come home in a good way to give them the support and the resources that they needed to make that, that transition. And so we had a first grant uh, in a first prison and that led to three more and then five more. And as over the years increased to the point where we've got thousands and thousands of folks who have um, learned the practice of counsel, uh, integrated it into the culture of the prison yard and become agents of change, both in terms of the people they are becoming um, in terms of the culture on the yards, but also in terms of what they imagine and envision their life can be um, moving away from that space back into communities that so desperately need the elders to show up and be a guide and be a resource such that the causes and conditions that led to their incarceration don't keep recurring. You know, folks feel um, when they are given these tools that it's such a great benefit both to themselves in their process, but also gives them something that will be so valuable uh, back at home. And so we see increasingly um, these council groups that started in prisons leading to uh, grants of parole and um, folks finding a new sense of who they are and what they need, um, an understanding of their autonomic nervous system and tools that are so valuable for navigating the stressors that we all encounter and healing the harm that they have experienced and that they have caused and really kind of um, starting a new chapter, the skillful means that are necessary to become, um, you know, uh, part of the solution and not just uh, get lost in the system. And so I think that the, the transformation amongst individuals and these groups that are now, as you said, in 29 institutions around the state, uh, really gave us the sense that these practices could be brought forward such that folks had tools to not only apply to their own lives and when family came to visit and when they got into a dispute with their celly, but um, could be something they could carry uh, as part of the work they do in the world. And so we get to hire them when they come out. And we just hired two full-time folks who are uh, people that I met sitting in council circles five years ago. They were lifers without any idea that their next chapter would involve a full-time job with benefits 
they both have bought homes. They're living their best life. And I'm so grateful to have them uh, in the work now and more are following. And so yeah, the, the, uh, the work inside prisons has been tremendous for us. And then has extended beyond as we realize that the suffering in the system extends beyond those who are incarcerated to those who are asked to, you know, be the, the agents of, of the system, the correctional officers and law enforcement officers. And so that's sort of been the next chapter as we've expanded beyond uh, serving those folks who are incarcerated and who are looking for these skillful means to move forward. Before we got on this call, we spoke a little bit about how this system harms everyone it touches. And so it's really beautiful that you're continuing to expand this work. What does counsel look like in prison? Um, it's an extraordinary thing. <laughs> I wish everyone could see it. Um, we had a, a center here a little while ago for those who are watching on video that Blair and I were talking about, um, that, uh, had um, some objects in it that seemed important to me in the moment when we go inside prisons and talk about what it is to come together in a good way. Um, folks find a way to bring things that are precious to them. And it's really um, a remarkable thing to see how we have preserved our humanity within a dehumanizing system. And often it's the objects that we've carried with us that could be very simple. Um, and in fact, remind us of who we really are. Um, I would say that the, the, the prison program, which is called the Council for Insight, Compassion, and Resilience, uh, trains incarcerated folks to facilitate council sessions for their peers um, and with their peers, which empowers them to become these agents of change. It lays the groundwork for, um, for transformation and for stepping into a positive uh, next chapter. Um, you know, I, I had the, the great good fortune of, of studying with... Um, Roshi Joan Halifax for, for several years and completed the, the chaplaincy program at Upaya. Uh, Roshi Joan talks about how you can't teach compassion. It's not teachable. And yet compassion is made up of non-compassion elements that are trainable. Um, building blocks that can develop this capacity. I think what our program in prisons does is it uh, teaches um, folks to develop the capacity to sense physical, emotional, mental suffering in themselves as a result of the opportunity to tell their story and also hear the authentic story of others. And I, I think um, when we attune to that and develop that capacity for insight into ourselves, it's a precursor to sensing that in others and to developing insight and empathy. Um, I think it creates insight into cause and effect um, the ability to take the perspective of those who have been impacted by harmful actions and ways in which we have been impacted by harmful actions. It increases self-regulation and emotional intelligence and accountability. And I think in doing that, it really equips uh, the participants with tools to be successful as they chart out what their next chapter is going to look like. Um, and I think, you know, we touched on this and what's what's so important is to understand you know there's science around the autonomic nervous system you know we we can come to understand that you know dysregulation a sympathetic arousal that is absolutely necessary when there is a threat present 
doesn't always um, work for building relationships and envisioning the future and being discerning and having a sense of, you know, abstract thought. You know, we have bodies in which, you know, our sympathetic arousal requires that our prefrontal cortex shut down. And in doing that, we're not really listening. We're not really understanding. We're not really able to cultivate relationships. We can't read poetry. We can't, our eyes make it impossible for us to read a book. You know, these are things that happen so that we can fight and we can flee or we can freeze the things that we need to do in an environment like a prison. Also environment that police officers confront, often that we all confront in our day to day. And this sympathetic response, while necessary, needs to shut down so that we can digest our food and get some sleep and, you know, have a relationship with our partners and imagine, you know, the next chapter of our life. We cannot discern, we cannot listen, we cannot be relational at all if we are stuck in this sympathetic arousal. And there are things we can do to understand when we don't need that. What we're teaching folks inside prisons is the capacity to understand the science behind this and to regulate. So when we sit in council and we allow ourselves to slow our breathing, we allow ourselves to focus on the story of another, the, the um, self-witnessing of how our body feels, the body scanning, all the techniques we understand activate the parasympathetic tone that is necessary, we become more able to create a world that we want to live in for ourselves and for others. And we do that personally by learning and applying these skills, but also we do that for each other. You know, in the regard that we offer one another in these circles, we give each other the opportunity to understand, oh, I can interrupt this sympathetic arousal, this tone, this dysregulation. And in this space, I can be different. I can show up differently. I can hear in a different kind of way. I can surprise myself by self-witnessing that something else is arising in me I didn't know was there. And the capacity to move in and out of that is what counsel offers a group and what individuals take with them beyond counsel into their lives. You know, often I, I, we sort of joke about this because some of the folks who come out of prison have said, you know, it used to be that the commodity, you know, you were known for might be contraband of one kind or another. And, and that's what got you, you know, a certain status on the yard. And these, these folks are, um, you know, sought after because someone's having a conflict because somebody's, you know, got an issue with their cellie or a family problem or something. And, and folks who have participated in these ways, you know, have a kind of a superpower. They have developed the capacity to um, be with themselves and also to share with others uh, how it is to bear witness to suffering in a good way, such that we can show up and transform suffering. And that's an extraordinary thing to see happen in an individual. And these groups become a great resource for folks to um, be with each other, accompany each other in the development of these skillful means of becoming the, the people we want to be in the world. Thank you. What, what does a session look like? Is it people in dialogue? Is it just listening? Do you come with a theme? Do you come with a problem? I'm sure it's different every time, but yeah, what's kind of the inner working of council? Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> I love the question. And it's, it's a question that I ask every day. And I'm so um, excited to learn in every council I enter. You know, I, I got to go back to Ironwood State Prison in Blythe um, a few months ago 
Uh, I hadn't been there since 2016 or 17 for years. We hadn't been in there, but we had taught a bunch of, a bunch of folks. Um, there were about 24 guys. Um, most of them were lifers. Every single one of them got parole. Every single one of them. Um, they accredit, they credit the work they did in council as being the major factor that helped them really rethink who they were and show up to the board of parole hearings as a different person. And they've been doing incredibly. So that's just a little side note. When I showed up, um, I was, um, invited into a council led by guys who told me they had been taught by guys who were taught by guys who were taught by guys who we taught and that somehow they had recognized the incredible benefit of this work and had found a way to make it their own generations really after we had been in there. So it became, you know, what for them worked to give them the resource they needed. Uh, and it was different than what we had taught the original guys, but equally powerful and important. And it was great to be able to get back in there and offer a couple of things that, that uh, I think could be helpful to them. Um, and I think every group uh, finds its own way with these very basic um, elements of counsel and basic intentions. You know, we need to be in a circle so that we can see who's there. We understand when somebody is not really in the circle. And so we can construct that um, with a bunch of chairs or backjacks or cushions. But interestingly, we can construct it online as well. We've now found ways to do this virtually that is not the same thing as being in the same room, but we can kind of bring to bear what it means to be together in circle in a number of different ways. But in prisons, generally speaking, it's an actual physical circle of guys, uh, women as well, but mostly guys, because that's where we are mostly. Um, we um, have a center that holds for us uh, all that we share, our common ground, that thing that sort of brings us forward, that resonates with us in a precious kind of way. And creating that center, you know, it's not a, it's not a religious thing. It's not a doctrine thing. It's a thing about uh, you know, this invitation to bring forward that which we carry and that which we are here to serve. So the center becomes important in council. We have to understand what it means to step in with consent and um, intentionally to this space. So there's a beginning in council, which can look differently. Sometimes it's a dedication like the candle that I, I had lit earlier, and uh, it can be a number of different things. There are four intentions in council, and there's a way to step away in a good way. The four intentions really simply are to um, listen without judgment, to listen from the heart, to be open and to offer regard, to speak what is alive and what is fresh, to speak in a way that gives words to what is present for us right now, to be spontaneous and to go to the essence, to be lean, because as much as we find this to be rewarding when it's time for count and this correctional officers come in, you got to end. Or when the bell rings in the school or when the shift ends at work, you have to end this. And so we need to navigate time by really taking responsibility for being lean and going to the essence. With those four intentions, and then with an understanding of how we leave counsel in a good way, understanding that what we've done together was because of how we showed up. And when we leave the space where we have showed up, those conditions shift. And so we can always come back. But we... Um, we need to be acknowledging of, of this. It's not to say that it's confidential or a safe space. I would never tell anyone this is a safe space. I can't say that. I can hold it as a precious space and I can offer it in a good way. But every group has to navigate their own uh, contract around confidentiality and around what is safe. And so we encourage them to have those conversations. With those basic elements 
uh, groups create council experiences, whether they're in a maximum security prison or they're in a police precinct and it's you know time for roll call and they want to be in council, whether it's faculty at a university or it's you know a bunch of nurses at the NICU, you know, after a really difficult shift. Council's gonna uphold those basic um, elements and those intentions, and it's gonna look very different such that it can serve the group that shows up and be of benefit. And so we teach these um, ways to carry this work uh, in a very basic way. We bring these into prisons, we offer them to the public, we go into organizations, we have a, a whole range of ways that folks can learn counsel, um, a counsel for beginners, which is counsel one, and then ways to navigate you know, the shadow and when things go off the rails is counsel two, and then counsel three is how we live it in the world. Um, and, you know, it is one of many important streams that are arising now in response to the dislocation and the isolation folks are feeling that help to reweave this torn fabric. Um, I think it's a, a beautiful practice. I am so um, grateful to be able to learn more and more every time I sit in a council um, of what it might be, what it can look like. Uh, and there are many, you know, adjacent and congruent practices that also uh, can be of benefit. So I, I just appreciate that there's so much good work in the world that create the conditions for compassion to arise. Um, and it needs to be adaptable. I guess kind of that's what I'm saying. You know, when we uh, bring this to the Los Angeles Police Department, we're not talking about it in the same way that we talk about it with folks who are incarcerated or who are in, you know, seventh grade at a school or who are, you know, um, nurses in a, in, a, in a highly traumatized environment. We talk about it differently. And um, it's important that we speak into the listening, as Marshall Rosenberg would say, so that it becomes something that serves the group that is seeking this kind of nourishment. I'm talking an awful lot. I hope that made sense. <laughs> That's the point. We want you to come here and talk a lot. This is great. And I, I think that was beautifully said. So what are some of the hidden skills that come out of being in council? Well, I think the skills are um, really critical. And I think it's important that you know, I, I speak this way because I'm talking about, you know, return on investment often when we want folks to create grant funding or invest in this. I think that there are some very concrete skills that we can um, really demonstrate before and after. You know, we use metrics wherever we go. Uh, in the prison setting, we've used these criminogenic factors that are dynamic, meaning things that can change like empathy and insight and prosociality. And we can demonstrate that if you test people before and you test them after a dosage of three months of this work, that these um, validated academic scales show change in this way. So folks who are participating are on the criminogenic scale, you know, less uh, criminally inclined, if that's the lens through which you see this. When we work with police officers, um, it's really extraordinary to see these folks kind of come with so much resistance and susp suspiciousness and eye rolling and um, sit down and often resist and resist and then something breaks through. And um, what we understand about the suffering of law enforcement officers now is really extraordinary. These folks are on average, giving anywhere from 15 to 21 years of their life away. You know, the mortality rates are extraordinary. Folks are dying of stress-related illnesses. Not only are they unable to perform optimally and meet the community in a good way, but they're killing themselves. They're literally killing themselves. And so 
when they come back and think, well, you know, I don't know if this council thing is working. I mean, my blood pressure is lower and I'm sleeping through the night and my wife says I'm a nicer person and my kids want to hang out with me. And generally I'm feeling better and I'm running 11 miles instead of five and I feel better about myself, but I don't know that this is really working. You know, it's kind of like, all right, well, that's fine. That's good enough for me. We, we are measuring in ways that are more comfortable for different communities to speak about. I don't want to get caught in the jargon of it. For me, um, what is really surprising is the way in which what comes through me is completely unexpected. I surprise myself all the time when I give myself permission to say what's here rather than what I think I should say. You know, I'm often asked to describe, you know, what is this going to do and, you know, show us its success. And I can talk about that. But for me, what's really interesting is to recognize and give some voice to something that's new and that's um, arising and that I haven't recognized. And I often feel permission to speak of things we were in a prison um, about four or five days after my mother had, had passed away. And there was a lot of grief that I was carrying. And it was a new group of guys um, at a prison, most mostly uh, Spanish-speaking uh, gentlemen. But I felt the need to say some things about what I was carrying. And the response from that council was so extraordinarily um, moving to me. It really opened in them stories of their life and, um, you know, joys and regrets and compassion that by the time the talking piece moved around that circle and came back to me, I felt uh, so, um, I don't know, so cared for, so much lighter. I hadn't expected a group of folks I'd never met in a prison in the middle of the desert could offer me that kind of solace and support. But that happened. And I felt it important to bring forward what was alive for me in that moment and then be open to what came. And so I think over and over again, what we recognize in people across from us in the center, in, across the, over the center, across the circle, uh, what we recognize shocks us because someone who looks like you or comes from where you come from or talks like you or reminds me of someone I know, you know, you shouldn't be saying things that go right into my heart and, and, and bring up all this emotion. How could this be? You're the other. And all of a sudden your story resonates with me. What's going on here? I never thought that somebody who voted for that person would, would tell a story that would move me in this way. But I leave here having a completely different idea of who you are from where you were when, when you walked into this room wearing that, you know, cap or, you know, uh, uh, demonstrating how, how different you were for me. The, the transformation in, in a very short amount of time when we allow ourselves to really um, bear witness to what is arising, to um, really offer regard without judgment and without preconceived ideas to another um, is kind of shocking. It's it's surprising in all kinds of ways, small and large. And I've, um, I've been amazed at how different I feel after uh, sort of basking in that regard of, of others and, and also having the opportunity to meet folks that I never expected I would feel a closeness and a resonance with, um, leaving council feeling really deeply connected and being able to build with them and collaborate with them in a way I, I never thought I could before I sat in council with them. I think that's one of the things that surprised me the most as well about going into prison is really how generous everyone was. And I know that that's specifically the, the space that we're carving out, right? We also practice in a circle when we do yoga and embodied mindfulness. Um, but I feel like I am 
blown away by the generosity that I see mm-hmm. um, every single time that we come and we show up. And I'm hearing also uh, that center fosters open-heartedness, relational skills. What are the other pieces and, and themes that you feel like council offers people? Well, I think going back to um, this concept of what compassion is and isn't, you know, this has is, um, been of great concern and interest to me in the work that I've done. Um, compassion is often misunderstood. It's not just about how you feel. It's about what you do. And it's not sympathy. It's not pity. It's not even empathy. And understanding how it is that we can bring compassion to these critical encounters, uh, both as folks who might be facing, you know, incarceration or hospitalization or other kind of, you know, uh, conditions in which they're under duress, but also those of us who do the work out in the world, you know, we are committed to certain ideals, but without an understanding of compassion and without the capacity to really develop these skills, I think we find that something, you know, like altruism can quickly become pathological altruism. Uh, This is uh, Joan Halifax again talking through me that empathy can lead to empathic distress um, and fatigue as we go down the rabbit hole with folks, that engagement can become burnout, um, that this sort of preferencing and, and, uh, you know, working with respect and integrity can lead to moral outrage. And there are things we get caught in that prevent us from doing our best work and being really um, functional with the work that we intend to do. And often it leads to cutting short our ability to do this work um, and diminishing us. And I think that what happens when we are showing up in council without um, an agenda, without a doctrine, without a um, expert telling us this is how we get better, this is how we're broken, here are the steps to becoming well, when we recognize that we can access our innate human goodness simply through showing up and offering an open heart and regard, listening to each other the way we listen to nature, the way we listen to the the waves. You know, down in San Diego, if you go to the beach and you hear the waves, you don't have to agree or disagree with the waves. They're just the waves and they're making sounds and you learn about the surf by listening. Or when the, you know, the wind is blowing through the trees, you know, you're able to bear witness in a way that doesn't require that you have a stance or have an opinion. And sometimes we find ourselves in human relations um, kind of reverting to a series of judgments about who that person is. And, you know, are they with me? Are they against me? Are they, you know, someone that has credibility or not? We so close the aperture through which we kind of can hear what they have to say or encounter the other. And when that happens, I think we really, um, we are not functioning in a way that is pro-social at all. And we are led into this place of uh, resistance and dismay, which is based on this idea of us versus them and a sense that, you know, the the sympathetic arousal, the way in which we perceive difference and threat um, diminishes our ability to truly listen from the heart and our willingness to speak authentically. And when we lose that and we lose our ability to have relationships, I think we see some really awful, dispositive um you know, uh, occurrences in our culture. I think we're suffering profoundly on all kinds of levels, not just systemically, but I think, you know, generationally. And there's not a, a big leap to make here between 
the loss of these skills of listening um, attentively, speaking authentically, and uh, creating conditions for compassion to arise with you know the opioid epidemic, people feeling isolated with political violence, domestic violence, mental health issues. There's so many things that are evidence of the profound suffering that I think are eased by having a practice that not only gives us an opportunity to come back in, into accord with our own sensations, but also in relationship with those that we feel comfortable with, but also those who we share the planet with, with whom we don't feel comfortable. We need to find a way to rebuild those connections. We need a practice that brings us back into relationship that creates the capacity for us to engage. And I think that's the invitation in all of this work. Um, I think that's sort of the hidden benefits of practicing counsel and yoga and mindfulness and zazen and you know, all the contemplative practices that we are attracted to. We need to see the benefit off the cushion and off the yoga mat and in the world. And I think if we can begin to integrate these things that we're learning about our capacity to develop these skillful means of listening and speaking differently, I think we can become agents of change as our incarcerated friends show us over and over again uh, to create the world that we want the next generation and generations to come to be able to benefit from. Thank you. And uh, also, yeah, shout out to Roshi Joan Halifax. She's a personal hero. I know that you have studied with her and longtime spiritual friends. Um, and you had spoken earlier about how she says that compassion can't be taught. And I feel like this is a perfect opportunity to weave in your book as well of where compassion begins. Can you talk to us about your book and maybe some themes in there? Thank you. Yeah. You know, um, folks often leave an experience of counsel and think, oh man, that was amazing. When can I come back to one of these? And I think what you've experienced is, you know, it's a, it's a birthright. It's something any human can do. And sometimes there's a little support that is required. So the book was an attempt to really um, give folks resources beyond the experience. And in fact, it came out of our experience in the pandemic when, <clears throat> excuse me, when we had uh, funding to go into prisons that was expiring. Uh, we weren't allowed to go into prisons, but I um, really um, begged CDCR to allow us to take some of the lessons and put it in book form. So we were able to create a book both for incarcerated folks, but also for the general public, which is on you know Amazon and, and available through our website, of course. Um, and in talking about where compassion begins, I think it's really important to understand that we have to start with a with a backward step. We have to be able to really settle ourselves and recognize um, how overwhelming it is to be in the world. Um, we need to pause and downregulate. We need to understand what that means for us. Um, and when we really empty ourselves, we can better take in data. It's not possible when we're dysregulated. We can better access those parts of us that imagine and vision how we can uh, function in the world. Um, I think this kind of open-hearted listening and uh, attentiveness um, builds relationships. Um, and then there's a recognition of right action and skillful action um, when we become aware of the need, when we become aware of the suffering that surrounds us. And we're able to respond in a good way and not just sort of reflexively. Um, and I think all of these kind of awarenesses develop through practice. The The book, uh, Where Compassion Begins, is uh, um, it's an opportunity to 
talk more about the things we're talking about here. What is council? Where does it come from? What are the roots? Why is it called council? Who named it council? Um, you know, there's some very important questions about um, extraordinarily generous and beautiful wisdom tradition and teachers who have guided the evolution of this practice that need to be named and discussed. Um, we need to understand where it comes from and what the different forms are. And then we need to practice. And so the second part of the book really offers us um, 24 assignments. Uh, I was um, so um, blessed to have an opportunity to work with Jan Chosen Bays on some mindfulness on the go activities that she's created that we've integrated into this book, uh, along with suggestions of prompts that you could use in a council with your partner or your family or at the workplace, reflections that might show up in journaling, resources, podcasts, other, you know, TED Talks and things that really reinforce some of the things we're talking here. Way to talking about here. We, this is a, a opportunity to continue the dialogue beyond just realizing that, hey, that was really cool and beneficial. How do I, how do I dive deeper? How do I get myself more involved in this? I don't think the practice of counsel is something that will evolve from a book, um, but hopefully the book will be nourishment for those who are attracted to the practice. You know, there's a lot on our website that provides some insight into what it looks like in a prison or what it looks like with a bunch of police officers. There are workshops that happen, you know, all over around the world where folks can spend two days and really drop into this practice, the pedagogy, the the methodology, the different ways we can practice counsel, and all of those things are available. I'm so excited. I so appreciate, Blair, the opportunity to, you know, to be with your community and to, to bring new ideas and resources forward because I think we're, we're really hungry for that. There's a, there's a longing for a way to um, move away from this sense of contraction and fear. Our social media feed is algorithmically designed to get us worked up about how messed up things are and how those people over there are the ones who are causing all the problems. And there, there's so much that's reinforcing, you know, um, being scared and being feeling isolated and feeling disconnected. And it's so critically important to have a practice that, that brings our humanity forward, that helps us really become stronger in these skillful means um, such that we can continue to show up, as Roshi Jones says, with a strong back and a soft front. You know, we are we are in a world that we need to be moved by. And at the same time, we need to find ways to, uh, you know, um, ballast ourselves and um, stay in this struggle because um, folks need us. They, they need us to be at our best and um, the suffering in the world needs attention. So hopefully what we're able to do here with these practices and trainings and programs is to give folks more tools, be able to be those people in the world that uh, are not contributing to the, the craziness and the confusion, but maybe, you know, creating a, a place that we want the next folks to be able to benefit from and be nourished by. Yeah, I think we are absolutely in a time where uh, we need to double down on community. Community. Absolutely. What is happening at your local level? How can you be involved? How can you um, support? Uh, I went to a, an emergency mental health training. It was a free training. I highly recommend this training. Um, it ha it's almost in every county through Mental Health America. Um, so it was an eight hour training. Um, and basically from that, from that, I saw how important community is. And I, I think that there's, you know, no question about the impact, you know, people who have followed, you know, Gabor Mate and 
and John, Johan Hari and other people, you know, the, the opposite of addiction is often connection. That Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General of the United States, wrote a book called Together, identifying the greatest threat to the health of the nation is this sense of isolation and disconnection. We need to find one another. We need to cultivate relationality. We need whatever community looks like, whether we are in, you know, rural or urban areas, whether we're unemployed or working in a, you know, in a tech firm, there are ways to do this. You know, there are ways to bring a council program, but also so many other interventions. But, you know, in my world, you know, we can show up to a tech firm or to a police department or to a school or to a prison and in a short amount of time, activate a group of folks, a cohort of folks to practice in this way, to learn from the practice of council and to offer it to the community such that there is that resource, there is that ability to connect and to, to show up in a good way and be able to be nourished by the regard of others. The the trust and the you know efficacy really follows this capacity to be vulnerable and to be authentic. You know, we often think that you have to have a trusting environment to be vulnerable. I think that that many researchers, Daniel Coyle has a wonderful book on this called The Culture Code, that you know, vulnerability leads to trust, not the other way around. You don't wait for trust to be vulnerable. But when folks have an environment in which they can bring themselves authentically and vulnerably, it you know gives you the idea that it's okay to bring your full self forward. And so, you know, whether it's a faculty meeting or a staff meeting or a class once a week or a program in a prison or something you do after roll call in your police department, this, and I'll say that in the police departments we worked with, these council huddles, we call them, uh, of five or six officers that don't have, you know, a mental health expert there watching every move, but let you know that there is an opportunity for mental health support available to you. And it it's not, you know, the stigma of that doesn't have to exist for everything that comes up, but just generally speaking, that the culture is one where you can talk about, you know, what's difficult about this job, what you feel great about, the frustrations you're having with your peers, the permission to have that, you know, team huddle is often life-saving for folks. You know, it's certainly transformative. And I'm going to invite our audience to start to gather their questions, but I've got a couple more. So while everyone musters the courage to drop their questions in, uh, I realize we haven't talked about reentry and counsel with reentry. We're definitely just going to have to have you back. We have to have you back. We got to get trained with you. You know, this is just the beginning. But what does counsel look like for communities post incarceration? Yeah, it's been this. Oh, gosh, I have so wanted to be able to have this in place for so many years. And finally, last year, we received a grant to be able to construct the council reentry program, which meets folks when they get word that, um, you know, they're on the ticking clock waiting for, you know, the day to come. There's about 120 days where the governor can take it away from you. But once you have been granted parole, you're sort of preparing yourself for this moment. And that, for many, is the most difficult 120 days of their incarceration that waiting period where you just don't know and where folks around you kind of know they can mess with you because you're not going to do anything that is going to, you know, jeopardize that. It's a really tough period. Uh, we created a, a book for uh, individuals who are in that moment of making the transition home and everyone who supports them called um, leaving prison behind, which um, was really a result of so many folks sharing with us their experiences of what they did, what they wished they had done conversations that were, you know, important to have regarding how you prepare yourself to really leave, to understand freedom beyond just being inside or outside and how it is you not, you can avoid 
taking prison um, and the mentality of prison back home with you, the way you are with others on the yard, the way you've learned to be to survive is not going to cut it in your family and with your kids often. And so um, a lot of these resources were really important. That was the first piece of this. We really wanted to reach folks who are thinking this way and also engage with some case management for folks who are coming to the Los Angeles area so that they can continue the work they've been doing uh, one-on-one, but also in a group as soon as they land in the Los Angeles area. So these um, re-entry circles are basically a chance to continue in council with people in the community who have some experience of this work and are nourished by the chance to show up when you get home in this way. Also gives us a chance to meet folks and create a networking environment, a community of care where resources can be pooled and shared and uh, our case management that surrounds this uh, supports folks as they make this critical transition and gives us a chance to activate the organizations that we work with, the law enforcement agencies we work with and others so that this conversation can broaden um, beyond just your relationship with your you know, probation or parole officer. You know, that's often an inadequate amount of support for what you are going to need as you make this huge transition for some, you know, 20, 25, 30 years of incarceration coming home and you know, just having, I mean, culture shock is not even a word to describe what it means to show up in community, just having to relearn everything and a community that goes through this together and has access to the supports that we've created through this practice of counsel is, I think, a really nourishing thing. We're, you know, funded to do this initial uh, stage of this. I think this needs to be much bigger and broader. It needs to be exported to every community. And it's a kind of final integrating piece between the work we're doing with folks inside the work we're doing with law enforcement and in communities with community-based organizations uh, and with families. And I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm really eager for this to continue and it's my job to go out and find a way to make it possible to fund this so that it can expand and be available, not just in the Los Angeles area, but beyond. It's so important this re-entry piece. And I'm so happy that you're getting acknowledgement for it, like through the grant, right? And that hopefully it continues to be able to grow um, because we don't we don't set people up for success at all. Mm-hmm. And I can see that, you know, the that CDCR, this this R, the red painted R you spoke to earlier, um, is still really being integrated. Yeah. The rehabilitative piece, we still have our punitive justice system. And we don't provide opportunities for people to heal while they're incarcerated. And we expect them to be able to go out after prison. Um, And it's just not possible for what we offer while they're inside, what we offer after. So, yeah, offering an opportunity for integration and processing and community and support and resources is so important. I think that this is a... It's aspirational to a large extent. Yes, the resources need to be there, but, you know, I mean, it's sort of silly to say it takes a village, but it takes all of us really engaged. This is not something that needs to be on the shoulders of those who are incarcerated and, you know, get a a bus pass and, you know, some pocket change and can just show up. We need to understand the critical importance of receiving folks in a good way such that they can integrate. And I think there's a lot of 
appreciation for that, but there's also a lot of othering. And, you know, we've managed to incarcerate uh, a, a really staggering number of people, most of them black and brown. And to do that consistently, for some reason, that is part of who we are as a culture. We tend to other. And as we other, we tend to find ways to um, separate ourselves. And I think what's so critically important, and I think this has come up for us as the next chapter in our our life as an organization is what is beyond us and them. How do we move beyond us and them? How do we understand that aspiration to go um, to a place where we can thrive together? This is my, I told you, I love to kind of quote Rumi. So I have this sort of Rumi piece that is part of the great, a great wagon, what a, what a beautiful poem, but it sort of animates what our direction is moving forward. And it's that stanza after the beautiful line about, you know, there are a hundred ways to kneel and, kiss the ground. Um, but it, it is Rumi's piece that out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I will meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. I think that's, to me, what animates, you know, why we do this. We need to understand that we've got to get to that place, or at least we need to hold that aspiration. And so we're really, you know, while counsel is is lovely, while counsel is, you know, one beautiful, skillful means of easing suffering, yoga is, and meditation is, and centering prayer is, and walks in nature are, and there are all kinds of ways um, to... Uh, to bring this practice forward uh, such that we can heal that which, um, you know, contracts us into this place of fearing the other and not wanting to make room, you know, for folks to come home in a good way, for there to be relationships between police and community, for kids in school that aren't, you know, kind of typical, you know, superstars. We can't, we can't lose folks because we uh, don't have the capacity to see their uniqueness and their diversity. And I think all these practices are really intended to support that uh, ability to to create the the world in which we want to live mm. and to heal and to heal to heal in community mm. thank you so we talked about it a little bit how would someone learn train know more about counsel um so centerforcounsel.org is our website. There's a lot of stuff on there that may be of interest to folks. I'm blown away by the things that I've seen happen. Never expected to be sitting with 140, 170 LAPD cops in council. Never expected to have correctional officers and, um, you know, uh, senior faculty at noted universities, um, doctors, heads of departments, never thought this was possible. So just the fact that we can understand folks can come together in this way beyond the sort of rarefied air of a yoga retreat or those of us who may you know, think of ourselves as seekers, that, that the world needs this and is ready for it is an amazing thing. And I'm so grateful to have had an opportunity to be doing this out in the world and invite folks to hold the possibility that you know, that this can be transformative in your school, in your prison, in your local um you know, tech firm, whatever it may be. Um, as far as learning the practice is concerned, um, the greatest teacher of counsel, I mean, absolutely beyond any other teacher of counsel, is counsel. 
you have to sort of learn from the practice and it's a beautiful thing to invite, you know, you're not going to get it perfect, but it will teach you. It continues to teach me. Um, and so opportunities to do that abound. You may want to come to a council training workshop. You might want to reach out to center for council and come to one of ours. We offer them throughout the year. They're regularly on the schedule in Southern California, but we go wherever I'll be in Dublin and in Paris and in Porto and in Lisbon in the next few months. Um, we're, you know, in Jacksonville, Florida and New York and other places as there is um, a call to do this. So often a yoga studio or a local community will want to offer counsel, or maybe it's an organization that wants to bring in a training for their staff. So those opportunities abound. For those who just want to kind of drop in and have a direct experience, we have social connection councils, which are online on Zoom with a center and with a circle. Um, I, I tend to, to host most of those. Those are on our website and you can sign up and it's, you know, a, a small donation and you can be in the practice of counsel for 90 minutes online. It's not like being in person, but it's a chance to plug in. And then there are the books and other ways to find out more about this. And, you know, we always welcome folks to reach out and if there is interest to, to grab a hold of us and, um, and find ways to be in the conversation. Um, it's a, it's a, as you say, a critical time for us all to find a way to connect and I'm really eager to do whatever I can to, to fan those flames. Thank you. And I've dropped these links in the chat and I'm also going to make sure that we have these links available to anyone listening to the podcast as well. So there's so many ways to get involved and experience and train. Um, I can feel the hearts opening in the room and I've got a lot of really beautiful comments here in the question and answers. Uh, the first one is, first of all, thank you both for your incredible work you're doing. I'm so inspired by this talk. Second, I'm wondering if you collaborate with Greg Boyle of Homeboy Industries. Um, we have trained the staff uh, at Homeboy a few times. There's a lot of turnover there and um, I think uh, Father G is uh, working on practicing self-care in ways that he needs to continue to do that. So we are supporting him and them whenever we can. We have some dear, dear friends at Homeboy um, and continue to collaborate. He was kind enough to uh, uh, be on a couple of panels of ours and and uh, help support the work. And there's a great deal of crossover. In fact, our offices are right near each other. So we get to see them pretty frequently. I have deep respect for uh, folks who move through there. Um, and it's not for everyone. There's some folks who, um, you know, are really needing to find their own path. Um, but I, I am, I'm grateful that Homeboy is in the world. We use Homegirl Catering whenever we can for any event that we do. We just had a big event that Homegirl catered. Um, and I encourage everybody to go get Father Father G's books and and uh, learn about Homeboy and every everything that they they do to support uh, system impacted folks. They're, they're good friends of ours and, and uh, have a lot of respect and appreciation for them. I really love that. And the next question that we have is from Aslan. Uh, is this council community program related to council center in Ojai, where I went for retreats during Palms Middle School and other students, um, or are these two separate institutions? So yeah, maybe talk about the origin. Aslan, wow. <laughs> So um, after the open school, I went to work for the Ojai Foundation. Um, I was uh, coordinating the program up there and um, then became the director of the Center for Council Training of the Ojai Foundation. Beautiful place, wonderful, um, extraordinary, uh, sacred place uh, founded by Joan Halifax, who then moved on to Upaya and then led later by uh, 
Jack Zimmerman and Gigi Coyle and some other wonderful teachers. Um, the Ohio Foundation has formally closed and a new organization called Topa Institute has um, taken its space and continues to do some work in that tradition. But I will just say that um, my many years working with the Ojai Foundation was were wonderful and informative and led me to think that while some schools are lucky enough to have a chance to send their kids up for a retreat in Ojai, and some individuals are um, blessed enough to have the resources to come up to Ojai to do a a council training and organizations can send their staff. It was very limiting for us to be there. And it felt at a certain point that I needed to shift what we were doing from being up in the Ojai Foundation down into, you know, downtown LA right next to Homeboy, um, where we felt we could be of service in a better way to meet folks where they are. And so uh, Center for Council became an independent organization, a spinoff, uh, if you will, from the Ojai Foundation in 2014. Um, it has enabled us to grow in ways that uh, we couldn't really grow uh, when we were part of that um, wonderful and rarefied air uh, up in Ojai. It enabled school districts and prison systems and uh, other um, organizations to recognize the benefit of what we were doing. Um, but all of us who were blessed to spend time up there so appreciate um, the teachings of that place and those wonderful teachers that came through. Um, and we hope that, that land continues to be a benefit for folks who will utilize it. It really suffered in the Thomas fire that decimated a lot of that. And a lot of the infrastructure was taken down. But there are some folks trying to rebuild something new in that space and uh, hope they will be successful. Um, but everything we were doing at the Ohio Foundation um, kind of landed um, downtown and Center for Council and has continued to grow in beautiful ways. I've been so grateful to be able to go back to some of my teachers, Jack Zimmerman and, and Joan and others, and show them some of what we only imagined could be possible with groups of, you know, L.A. policemen sitting in council. And, you know, as I mentioned, some really unlikely folks dropping into this practice. And I think there's you know enormous excitement that everything we imagined this would do is now coming to pass. And it's kind of a critical time for it, too, as we observe what's happening in our society right now. It's clear that now more than ever, we need these practices to be everywhere. We need this to be expanding. And so we did what we could do to be ready to scale up, to be able to grow. And so we have grown enormously and we have a lot more growing to do. I mean, I think I cut your bio like in a third, and I'm sure that's even only uh an iceberg of everything that you have built and created and offered. It's really incredible. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So we are close to time, but I just wanted to give you the last opportunity to speak to anything specifically that hasn't been said or, you know, to speak directly to the seekers and people who are looking, um, to heal and bring people together. Yeah. Do you have any last words? You know, it's, it's a, it's a great gift to be able to be in community like this. I have an enormous amount of appreciation that folks took the time to be in this conversation wherever they are. Um, this is the beginning to open yourself up to what might be and um, to meet, even though I guess they can see us, but we can't see them. We know that they're out there somewhere. And um, I have a, uh, I have so much um, gratitude for opportunities opening up. And I realize that um, things um, really become 
um, surprising when we can um, have an open heart and practice sort of not knowing, showing up in a good way, offering regard and being authentic. You know, these skills that we learn in the practice of counsel and elsewhere enable us to really um, show up in a in a way that can be of service. Uh, the suffering is immense. It is profound. It is everywhere. Um, and we can take steps to be whole, to heal, to be nourished uh, personally and relationally and communally. It is possible to do this. We need to deconstruct these ideas of us and them and, and some, some resistance we have to othering those who don't seem to be like us. Uh, but I think with that commitment and with the practice that supports it, I think um, we are, quote, the Hopi elders. We're the, we're the ones we've been waiting for. And we have ability to um, have an enormous impact on the way things go. Um, it's time to get out and, and, and really uh, make yourself present um, in serving the moment. It's time to create the conditions for compassion to emerge. It's time to be in our practice, to recommit to our practice, um, and um, to find each other in that practice as well. So I, I'm grateful to have found you all and hope you will reach out and uh, find us and look forward to our next conversation, Blair, because I think there's a lot more work that we can be doing together. I, I think so too. I am so grateful to be in community. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for coming to the pre-meetings and all of the chats that we've had. I'm just really excited to see where we can grow from here. And again, just a really heartfelt thank you to all of the people that you serve. Thank you, Blair. Thank you so much. Thank you.